welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. Episode eight, the only one, part one. So this is another delve into what we refer to as the smog. Yeah, so the smog is all the ways we talk about and often think about what makes a good school and what makes a bad school or a good parent and a bad parent. It's what we are breathing in our social circles at the playground, Facebook groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the smog statements are what we hear across the country um, as reasons why parents don't enroll their kids in a global majority school. Yeah. And in this case, it's the fear that your kid will be the only one white kid at the school. So we're actually going to try to tackle this one in two parts, parents with kids going through it and grownups who went through it themselves. So today, part one, we're joined by Lauren from Pennsylvania. She's a white mom. She recently moved to a new city. Uh, We're not going to actually name that city just to give her a little bit of anonymity, allow her to speak a bit more freely. But she moved there. They chose a global majority school for their kids, and they're the only one or one of a very small handful of white families at the school. So it's a conversation about what that looks like for kids, what it looks like for parents. And next week, we will have one final episode before we take a little break for um, the holidays that will feature our lovely co-host, Andrew, and his friend, Aaron. So Andrew, you were the only white kid in your elementary school, and yep. Aaron was the only black kid in hers. And y'all talk about what that experience was like and reflect back now as adults on that. Yeah. I'm excited about both of these episodes and I am glad we're breaking them up because I think there is really a lot to digest here. You yeah. know, on the one hand, the experience of being the only one, it changes over time. You know, it's different in elementary school compared to middle school or high school, but I think your feelings about it change over time as well. So my time as, as the only one or one of a handful in elementary school was definitely one of the most formative and meaningful experiences of my life. But I certainly didn't have that perspective on it while I was living it. And so with Lauren and with you, Courtney, we get to dig into what the experience is like for you and for your kids right now being only ones. But we also know that being the only one white kid is not the same experience as being the only kid of color for many reasons. Um, And so my conversation with Aaron really digs into that as well. And, you know, the perspective that our age gives us on the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we're splitting this up into two episodes you know, some of the reasons that people give for not enrolling their kids in global majority schools are a little bit easy, easier to write off. But I think this one yeah. is, is kind of tricky. And yeah. we'll probably do like an AP honors version of this conversation in the new year. Yes. But in the meantime, we wanted to just scratch the surface a little bit to start this conversation because there are challenges to being the only one. Like I, I'm reminded, Andrew, of this time when my daughter was in sixth grade and she was going to this large, like sixth through 12th grade urban school, right? Trump had just been elected the night before. And so therefore <laughs> I was late picking up the kid from school. I was just late. Mm-hmm. That's it. So when she gets in the car, she's angry. She's kind of shaken up and Apparently, while she was waiting for me, which was really only five minutes, but geez, she was really an eternity, I'm sure. It was terrible. Anyway, <laughs> while she was waiting, a few high schoolers apparently walked by, and you know, she's one of a handful of white kids. So these were Latinx high schoolers, and they're pumping their fists in the air, yelling, Trump, Trump, Trump voter at her. Mm. And she's like, Mom, do they even think I am old enough to vote? <laughs> You know, that's not, that's, that's not what's happening, kid. That's what this is about. (laughs) 
She's like, I have a picture of us voting for Hillary together. I am not a Trump voter. Why are they saying that? (laughs) So we talked a lot about that. We talked about how, you know, how it felt to have people assume things about you because of your race and how she felt like lumped into this category Mm. rather than attended to as an individual. You know, they didn't ask me how I would have voted. I guess she was having like the 12 year old version of, um, but I'm a nice white person. Right. Hashtag not all white people. (laughs) But that also led into, you know, deeper conversations again about Trayvon Martin, who was just walking home with a bag of Skittles. Right. Assumptions were being made of, my kid wasn't harmed. She wasn't even physically threatened. She was mostly just pissed that I was late, but her feelings were hurt, right? And, mm-hmm. and this experience, while difficult and uncomfortable, was one that I am really glad that she had. Yeah. She had this teensy, tiny, itty, bitty glimpse, very teensy, very tiny, but this is going to stay with her. This, this is hers now to, to draw on as an experience. Yeah, moments like this aren't comfortable, but they build the capacity for true empathy and, like you said, a tiny sliver of insight into what other people's experiences like. Yeah. Let's hear the conversation with Lauren. Yep. Today, we are here talking with Lauren about being the only one. Lauren, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm mother of two boys. I live in Pennsylvania, and we recently moved to the neighborhood that we're in, and we've been in our current school for about three months, four months. And can you describe your current school? Sure. It's the neighborhood school. We live in a smallish city. The neighborhood school is pretty small. There's only one class per grade. What are the demographics of the school? I think that it is 93% black and one or 2% white and one or two. I mean, these percentages aren't adding up. Um, It's over. (laughs) This isn't a math podcast. So your kid is definitely an only one. Yes. And you are a white parent. Yes. My husband and I are white. Our kids are white. So what has that kind of been like for you? Yeah, it's different for us this year. Um, So my kids are seven and four, and they're in second grade and pre-K, both at the neighborhood school. Previously, we were going to a school in a much larger district where the school that they were attending, which was also their neighborhood school, was larger and more integrated. Mm -hmm. I think it was about 60-40 black-white. So it's been different in size and demographic demographic of the students, but also demographic of the staff and faculty administration. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I have so many questions, like just about the comparisons, I guess, between, you know, attending an integrated school and an integrating school. So my son is the only one white kid and my daughter's class, there are more white kids and it feels really different of an experience. Mm. You know, just just a couple markets feels different, but I don't think it. You know, it's it's better or worse. But to me, the experience is different. Have you felt that? Um, for sure, in a number of different ways. I think the most striking for me first is that I'm obviously also one of the only white parents there, mm. and 
kind of finding my place in that as a parent socially and also as a parent relating to the administration and staff. I feel like it's, I'm just very much always examining like, how am I coming across to everyone else? You know, mm. um, I'm not challenging the leadership because I don't know, not only am I really new to this situation, but I, you know, it's not my culture and it's not my place to challenge the people who are in this school and who know these kids and who know the families. Cause the school has been there for a really long time. Like there's people who live in the neighborhood who went there as children. So I'm an outsider and I don't want to come in and step on everyone's toes. So that's been different for me. I asked my son as he hopped out of the car this morning, if he had any thoughts on it. And he was sort of nonchalant about it. He didn't really have anything to say. I think he would have said something if there was something, but he doesn't seem to feel singled out or um, socially uncomfortable. It's it's interesting. I think that's you know, one of the pieces that comes up a lot for parents who are sort of worried about their kid being the only one is imagining themselves in that situation. And if you didn't have experience, you're personally being the only one. Imagining your kid is the only one is really hard. Often that is parents' baggage being brought into it rather than the kid experience of it. When I was looking for houses, my mom came with me to look at houses and I had called the principal to see if we could just come in to the school because we were looking at houses in two different catchments and I just wanted to have been inside both of those schools before we made any decision about housing or anything. So my mom came with me to go inside of the school that my kids are currently at. And when we left, she said, you know, they're going to be the only white kids in that building. (laughs) And I admittedly got a little defensive (laughs) towards her about it. And I was like, well, you know, that's difficult for you to imagine, mom, because you work and live in white circles. Even though she taught in a fairly integrated school for 30 years, I mean, that was 20 years ago. So, you know, I don't think it's as strange for my son because he's coming from the school that is pretty integrated and I don't think that it'll be that upsetting for him, you know. So I asked her about it the other night and she said that she knows that it's uncomfortable for children of color to be the only one. And this was not the response I was necessarily expecting from her. I thought that I really did think her comment more came from her, you know, being accustomed to being all around all white people. She lives in a white suburb. They go to a white church. But she said, you know, I know that it can be uncomfortable for children of color being the only one. Mm. And, you know, I just don't want to be uncomfortable in that way. So I was surprised by that, but I was also kind of encouraged (laughs) um, that that's how she was thinking about it. I don't think that it's something that he or my four-year-old really, it hasn't really seemed to affect them. Yeah. I think there's a a certain amount of kids, they only know what they know. And so if that's their experience, that's their experience. It's interesting that she was not projecting herself into that space, but rather thinking back to some sort of understanding of the challenge for kids of color being the only one. Because I think that is a We don't see nearly the same amount of sort of hand-wringing among white people about the only black kid in the AP classes that we've, that we seem to get in terms of, you know, people thinking about their, their only white kid being in an all black school. Cause you know, we like to think that's a really nice thing, right? Like look at the advantages that this one black child now has from being in this white space. 
Mm-hmm. Right, but we don't think about it as advantageous to a white kid to be in an all-black space. That's right. Right. But I think it is. To me, that's there. there is real benefit to that experience. So it's like that's wrong on both accounts, right? <laughs> right. So, right. So like we don't often talk about the difficulties of being the black kid in an all-white space. And we think that it's really problematic to be the white kid in an all-black and brown space. And what you're kind of arguing, Andrew, and I would agree with, is that both of those are actually probably not true. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like it's even a a blip on his radar. I mean, and I think there are benefits to him being in that situation. Yeah, I think it's it's a timeline question, right? Like in the moment, it just is the way it is for him. Right, right. I was the only one growing up. And looking back now, I see all sorts of advantages to having had that experience. At first, I didn't really think much about it. And then there were challenges with it. But I think, you know, looking back sort of in the long term, that's where you see the the advantage right. of having had that experience. Mm-hmm. So, Lauren, you said that there were advantages or benefits or the just fineness. What do you feel like those are? I was just listening to some past episodes of the podcast. And I was thinking about um, was Olivia Borden yeah. and how she was saying how she has a more full understanding of the racism that her classmates face now that she's in like a more integrated setting. I mean, that's the standout one to me. If like the choices that I make can help my children to be active anti-racist, that will, (laughs) I will consider myself, you know, parenting check. (laughs) That is, I mean, that's, I think one of the huge advantages for them. And just seeing all different perspectives. I grew up in like a white affluent home And it took me into my 20s to really come to an awareness of all of these things. Just seeing how long it has taken for my racial identity development and for my understanding of racial disparities and systemic injustice, if I can accelerate that for my children, that would be a huge victory, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, when we talk about being the only one, I believe that a lot of our worries when we're saying the only one is our own feelings of awkwardness or discomfort in these spaces. And also a a lot of loneliness as a parent. And so we're looking for friends or community. Yeah, I think like in our previous school, there were uh, these all these other white PTA moms that I was aligned with and we would we became friends throughout the process. And so that's definitely something that mm-hmm. I'm missing now. And part of it I'm sure is that we just moved and part of it I'm sure is that the school is really small and there's not like a really a culture of like hanging out at the school at pickup. I definitely, I miss that, but I am hoping that just with some time and like getting to know other families through different venues and different opportunities at the school that hopefully I'll get to make some connections there because I haven't even really had the opportunity. I mean, I I think a little bit about last week's podcast, the Vicky episode, a trust that has to be built, I think. Mm -hmm. It just takes time and it's it's harder work, but I think it's, it's potentially more valuable work and potentially leads to more valuable relationships mm-hmm. but but it takes time and, and it's showing up every day it's earning the the benefit of the doubt yeah and I feel like it's been an exercise for me to like you said just showing up every day and I'm, I don't have demands I don't have these ideas of what 
I should be doing to like change the school and save it. It has been an exercise in not burdening myself with anything other than taking my kid to class and picking him up and just being present and not making a scene, not making a a fuss about things that I think are maybe less than ideal, just being there. But my kids had a lemonade stand over the summer and we were all just sitting out on the sidewalk and a white dad walked by and he said, Oh, like, are you guys new to the neighborhood? He said, what school are they going to go to? And I just said the name of the school, right? Like literally on the street we were standing on just a couple blocks down. And he said, you should send them to this magnet school. <laughs> and I was like very confused. I wasn't asking you. I try very hard to keep my voice completely level when I speak about any school. I projected nothing in my voice. No, like, yeah, we're not happy about it. Yeah, we didn't look into it. Yeah, we we're just stuck there. So he said, you should send them to this magnet school. That's where my daughter goes. And I was like, oh, I mean, they're enrolled at this school down the street. And he was like, let me look. I'm going to call the parent, this other parent, and see if there's any spots left at the magnet school. <laughs> what? And I just, my, I can't believe that like my jaw wasn't on the sidewalk, but I was just completely blown away because I've heard a lot of people's opinions, family members' opinions about the value of this school or that school. But I've never had some complete stranger on the sidewalk tell me what I should do. You had known him for 15 seconds. Right. And the only thing he knew about you was that you were white. Right. And that you had kids. That was it. And that they like <sighs> lemonade. That was it. You belong in the magnet school. <laughs> right. Exactly. Wow. Because they maybe they have a really great lemonade program. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I think there's um, some really interesting things that our kids experience and as parents we experience being the only one in a global majority space. I think we as parents are seen more Mm -hmm. and, and oftentimes that comes packaged with privilege that we don't necessarily want but get nonetheless. Lauren, you were sharing some questions you were having about your kid getting special privileges for being white. I do worry that my son is getting some benefits and privileges for his whiteness in his classroom. So my son is really compliant. He he just likes to follow the rules. He loves being awarded for being a rule follower. So I know that it's not like he's not special in any way because he likes that. He's not that way at home. (laughs) So... Um, Yeah, he doesn't enjoy the rules at home. (laughs) It's just his personality there. And so it's hard for me to hear the way that his teacher will talk about him as if he is something special because of that. The teacher has said things like, I wish you could parent all of the children. And, oh, you guys are normal. And just sort of acting as if we have done something to create this child who listens to her. And not so much that that like is just something about him. So I feel unsure of how to navigate that because she's a woman of color and I'm new to the situation. And I also have no background in education. I'm not going to suppose to tell her what to do (laughs) or how to do her job. So I feel a little stuck in saying like, 
I'm not comfortable with how like the pedestal that my child is put on in this situation, but I don't also know how to challenge that. Yeah. I also don't know how to interpret that. Right. Cause it could be, and as sure as heck sounds like that there's race privileging playing out. Right. But it could also be that the teacher says that to all the parents or that the teacher believes probably rightfully so that it's easier to handle white people through compliments. And she was just kind of buttering you up. And that goes back to, you don't know this until we have these relationships. How do you want to handle that, Lauren? It seems really complicated. (laughs) (laughs) I know from like what my son tells me and sometime in the classroom that there, there are other students that do get praised for their behavior. I just feel like I wish I could, I wish I could just ask her to stop praising us when it comes to my son's behavior. Please make sure you're praising the other 19 students of color in the classroom. Please be praising them all very equitably. (laughs) That she's not sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to overly praise the white kid. It just is happening because it's the way things are. Yeah. I mean, that makes me think about Maggie Hagerman from episode three. The the idea that we're all making individual choices in a mm-hmm. system yeah. that is collective. Mm-hmm. So the the system of white supremacy that exists everywhere, you can't make decisions outside of that context. And your individual decisions, while you can sort of chip away at some things, are not going to actually change that. Right. What what about the the other kid who has similar behavior but doesn't get the benefit of the doubt? Mm-hmm. Sort of all the assumptions that come along with being a white kid in that space, you can't you just can't get away from them. Right. You know, I'm also thinking of the book, uh, Despite the Best Intentions, where Amanda Lewis and John Diamond are talking a lot about how the expectation on the part of administration and faculty at a school are that it's just easier to kind of pre-give white families what we think they want because they're going to ask for it and make a Mm -hmm. noise about it anyway. You know, so Mm -hmm. I don't know if like that's part of the piece to this Or is this just really like the depth of white supremacy culture? And we know that that's not limited just to white people doing it, but that makes it more complicated. Yeah, that is a, that is a really good point. And it's kind of why I've hesitated to say anything to anyone else, because I don't want to be that white parent who's going to get what she wants just because they assume that I'm going to have demands. And I also have an insane amount of respect for teachers because I think large groups of children are terrifying. So I <laughs> don't, I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's uh, again, it's a, it's a systemic issue that you have to make an individual decision in, and there probably isn't a real clean way to get around that. Yeah. It, it may come down to a sort of building enough of a trusting relationship over time yeah. to then be able to say like, Hey, just so you know, like, don't do this on my behalf, kind of. <laughs> yeah. We're, we don't need it. We're not going to demand that you celebrate our child. And in fact, it makes us a little uncomfortable. There's some relationship building that has to happen before that is a useful conversation. You know, I also think that there's the relationship part, but also calling it out. Like that might be part of the work here. Thank God this isn't an advice podcast. And I think also like having the chance to talk with your boy about it Mm -hmm. probably has, has a lot of power. I I think that the fact that he is, he has the opportunity to be made aware of this context and for you to have a 
conversation about it that's not based on a board book, that's not right. intellectual, that is actually about feelings, about your friend gets treated different than you do. Like, what does that mean to you? Mm -hmm. You know, how does that show up in your life? Coming back to the sort of benefits of being in these spaces, in my mind, it's, it's the opportunity for those conversations and for those conversations to not just be intellectual. Mm -hmm. Being the only one in a school, like we've talked about some of the challenges that come along with that, but you're still a white kid in the systemic structures of the school. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you leave the school, you're still a white kid. And so, all weekend long. <laughs> in all these other places, you still carry all the benefits of white culture. And even inside of a school where you may be one of the only white kids, you still get the benefit of bringing your whiteness into a system that is largely designed to support whiteness. Mm -hmm. And so it is a tiny sliver of a window into being in the minority, but it's like a super safe peeking in the window. Yeah. But even that tiny little window, I think, is super powerful and, and worthwhile. Mm -hmm parents are so nervous that their child will be the only one and what that will be like for them. But then the reality is that not only are they only experiencing a tiny sliver of what it is like to be the only one in a situation, it, it is benefiting my son. I mean, not, not even like in the long-term way. Like, So I don't want my kid to be the only one is something that might prevent people from choosing to enroll their white and privileged kid in a global majority school. But what does that mean? Like, what are we afraid of mm -hmm. when we say we don't want our kid to be the only one? It depends if someone's going to be honest with you. It depends if someone is willing to yeah. admit that they honestly aren't they do, that that's not even what they mean, um, that it's not really about their kid. Um, because I think you touched on it earlier about how it's a lot about how the parent is. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's about your idea of like perceived risk that your child, I know a lot of people are convinced that their child is going to come home using bad words that they learned at school, which obviously children hear what they hear, wherever they hear it. I know. Do white kids know any cuss words? No, what? they don't. And they've definitely never heard their mother say no. it. So, <laughs> so I think there's that fear. We went to a church when we were in Philly that was probably like 60, 40 black, white. And we like, it was really like a great place. It was a big step on that like racial identity development for us. And another white family, they're like a generation older than us. And their kids were sending their kids, so the grandkids, to a neighborhood school. When I first started sending my son to the neighborhood school, she said, just be careful, you know, we, there was reverse racism. I was surprised to hear it from that from her because I thought that she would have understood that reverse racism is not what she meant. And I was also surprised that she even framed it as being a racial issue. And I don't know the details of what was going on, but I think at the end of the day, it was just that he was being bullied which is a real fear of sending your kid into any space. I mean, my husband was homeschooled and he's petrified of bullying, even though he was only in public school for a few years and he experienced it at this like very white school district in central Pennsylvania. Not to minimize the bullying he did experience, but there's like this fear that you're not going to experience it somewhere else or that you're not going to experience it in other social settings, even apart from school. Yeah, the things that happen in a school that 
looks like your school that very quickly people will attribute to being because of that school. Mm-hmm. And at a school that doesn't look like that, at a school that is largely privileged, largely white, people write those things off as things that just happen. Right. I mean, bullying is an issue everywhere, obviously. And, and like you said, not something to be diminished. But the idea that somehow there will be more bullying in an integrating school I mean, certainly that's not, that hasn't been my experience. My experience, at least, is that the bullying can be worse in homogenous spaces. In schools that are largely white and largely privileged, the, the type of bullying that ends up happening tends to be more personal. And I think there's like a natural tendency, especially in the middle school years, there's a real natural tendency to find your place, figure out who you are. And when you're doing that in the context of a diverse group of kids, it's much easier than when you're doing that in a context of all kids who look alike, who have the same basic, you know, family structure, who have the same, you know, general social status, that the ways that kids then try to differentiate themselves become more personal and become more sort of nasty. Mm. Okay, but I'm going to, I'm going to push back here a little bit. Maybe the question is one of targeting. Maybe bullying isn't the right word. And if bullying is a very heavy and specific term now, and I'm not at all an expert on it, but, you know, I think it's like, will your kid be targeted because they are white? I think that's mm. maybe the question. Because they stand out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so we can talk about bullying as if it exists everywhere because it does, right? And some schools handle it better than others. And I think that's part of the question, right? But also, is my white kid going to be targeted yeah. because of the whiteness? I feel like it's hard for me to imagine my son being targeted right now. And I don't know if that's because we're new to it or he's still really young or maybe it's that it's very small. And when I go into the classroom on Thursday mornings, like I'm greeted by the children with so much excitement. It's just hard for me to imagine that one day they would be targeting him because they seem to really enjoy him right now. And and when I think about the fact that they will all be in the same class together for the next six years, it just seems it's hard for me to think of how something about him that's not going to change, even though the dynamics and the maturity and the emotions and the hormones and all of that is going to change in six years his whiteness isn't going to change. No, but their relationship to his whiteness and his relationship to his whiteness and all of their relationships to identity and race change. That's true. So my kid was in a similar situation and, you know, it was kind of like fine-ish most of the time. Like he asked for brown hair for Christmas one year, (laughs) but like whatever, it was mostly fine and had friends and elementary school was, was pretty straightforward, but then seventh grade hit and it just kind of went sideways. He came home and told me that he wanted to go to a white school. Mm. I know. And I just about, my stomach started hurting. I'm like, uh, this is, you know, is this whole thing a sham? Like the experiment that people are saying doesn't work. And was I wrong? And so now he hasn't had chess club after school and the thing was a failure. Mm. So it was really hard. Yeah. His classmates were saying things like, oh, you don't understand us. You're just a rich white boy and you watch rich white TV, which apparently as an aside is um, Project Runway. <laughs> that's fair. Right? I, know. I mean, I feel like that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an accurate assessment. You know, like he wasn't, he, he was different. Right. You know, and that mattered a lot. 
But then it's the middle school, right? So you're like, okay, so when you go to the whiter and wealthier middle school that's literally a mile and a half in the opposite direction, you know, they're just going to make fun of you because you have the wrong color socks. You don't have the right brand of clothes. You have bagels in your braces. I don't know. They're going <laughs> to, you know, there's going to be something. It's going to, that's going to frighten right. you. It might not be that you're white. The details of that might be different, but it'll still be there. And then we talked about like, can you hear that your classmates at school are also giving each other crap as well? And you you just can't even pay attention mm-hmm. because you're so 13. I don't know. It was really, really hard. I mean, we, we stayed and he was half down for staying and kind of soon in eighth grade, he said like, I think we all grew up a lot over the summer and it's all cool now. And it mostly has been, Mm. but they really had to work through that. And these were kids who a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them had been together for a number of years. Yeah. You know, the working through of that was hard. For sure. And surprising because I thought like you were saying that it would be, oh, they've known each other so long. How could that possibly become an issue all of a sudden? But we, but it does. Um, When you were saying that, I was just thinking about why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and like how, how middle school years are big for that, um, big for all of our self-identity development. Middle school is tricky no matter what, but I think elementary school kids, I think they recognize race and sort of pick up on racial cues in ways that we probably don't always give them credit for, but I feel like it's less likely to, especially in the younger part of elementary school, less likely to have an impact on them and the way they interact with each other. Whereas, I mean, I, I remember feeling like, I don't, I don't know if it was necessarily bullied, but it, like feeling maybe like you said, Courtney targeted because I was white in, in way. Yeah. In ways that were challenging for sure. Um, and that weren't easy in the moment. But I think that again, sort of going back to the, the timeline question, your son now is in a better place with it. And I would guess we'll end up really grateful for the experience. I am very grateful for having had that experience. All I want is my children to be grateful. <laughs> <laughs> good, luck, good luck with that. They will never be sufficiently grateful, but I'm, I'm thanks mom. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to my parents for having sort of stuck through that and made that decision because it wasn't always easy, but I don't think, you know, I think every school is going to have its challenges, but the fact that Courtney, you got to have this opportunity to have a conversation about race with your kid because of this experience. And so, like you said, Lauren, you're accelerating the racial awakening of your kids. You're giving them the opportunity to engage in that in really meaningful ways from a much younger age. And I'll say too, like it didn't come up much from either of my kids too much in, in elementary school, but I'm just going to share another story. When the boy was, I don't know, maybe 11, we were sitting there and someone said, Oh, your sister's over by sitting by the, that Asian girl. And you know, my kid, I love you boy. And I know you're never going to listen to your mom's podcast, but I'm sorry. I just keep calling out your stories. (laughs) So he turns to me at this point and he's like, that makes me so mad. And I'm kind of shocked that he's having this reaction, like, what's going on? And he's like, why does that girl have to be the Asian girl? And my best friend has to be that Mexican kid. And that guy over there is that black guy. And I'm just the kid. Mm. And like, he already knew it. You know, he could already see the kind of... Normalization. uh, That's right. And like, it took me years to be able to see that Mm -hmm. as an intellectual exercise, but he could feel that. 
it, it wasn't like he was jealous of the hyphenated something, something. He knew that that just being the kid was the normal centered space. Carried privilege with it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that may be the heart of what at least I hope to give my kids by the experience is feeling like you'd rather not have that privilege. The only way you feel like recognize that as a privilege and think like, why does that have to be on me is because you have meaningful relationships with the kids who don't get that. Mm -hmm. And so even like the fact that it is a privilege and you recognize that there is some privilege associated with it, that still feels like you're being left out. You're different from your friends in some way. And I feel like that's the real awakening. And that's the thing that you have the opportunity to have when your kid is in only one or one of only a few. Mm -hmm. Bernie, I really like Lauren. Mm-hmm. She's funny. She's really thoughtful about this whole thing. I mean, she she toured the schools in her neighborhood before deciding where to live. She recognizes that she shouldn't sort of jump in and immediately try to fix her current school and that she needs to show up. She needs to listen. She needs to recognize the school was there before her. But, but you know, she also shows up with the expectation that she should get involved. She should challenge the system. She should fight for what's right. And, you know, she has to sort of work against those instincts in some ways. You know, I think it it speaks to how we are expected to show up, how we expect white parents to parent. Yeah. And I think that's a difficulty or one of many, right? Knowing how to show up. We can be all show up and shut up, show up and listen and then stand up for the black children and then let black women lead. And, and it's like always complicated to know the, where the line is bet- between what we should and shouldn't do. And that's why it's hard to kind of build the how to do it perfectly the very first time manual. Although, to be clear, we're working on one. <laughs> and, and we'll have an episode yeah. that talks a little bit more about this in the winter or spring. But, you know, relationship. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a struggle because on the one hand, integration has been successful in the past due at least in part to the ways that society responds to white voices, Mm -hmm. right? To the power that white people bring when advocating for our schools. It's not because we somehow care more or have better ideas or want better things, but it's a result of the culture that we live in that values white voices and caters to our needs. So, you know, if the goal of integration is better schools for everyone, at some point, we have to stand up and use our privilege. You know, there there are some values that we should not bend to for the sake of cultural relativity. And yet, as as episode seven with Vicky clearly demonstrated, showing up, planning to use your privilege to, you know, quote, save the school can also be super problematic. It's a really fine line to walk. And it's a thousand lines. <laughs> right. And sometimes being the only one can make that a lot more difficult. And I think also sometimes being the only one makes that line much more obvious and clear. Yeah. And I appreciated that Lauren was talking also about how sometimes being the only one can be a parent issue more than a kid issue. Mm. How we as adults feel and what we as adults expect or want from the school community might be different than the kids. And how kids interact changes over time. You know, I mean, like your story about about your oldest, it's, it's not the same in elementary school as it is in middle school. Our kids are affected by the way society views them differently as they get older and they become even more aware of it. It's a negotiation. It's sort of, it's ever changing. And it's one that can shift in a minute too. 
So a couple of days after we taped this conversation, Lauren told us that it had gotten hard, that her son does in fact feel like he's not yet connecting to the kids at his new school and the challenges she's having in trying to help. So listen. The other thing that happened over the weekend was that um, uh, one of the girls in his class had given him her number. I texted on Friday morning and I said like, oh, hey, my son would like to have a play date. Sorry that, you know, I'm just texting you out of the blue, but apparently your daughter gave my son this phone number. So, and the response was no dating. Sorry. I was like, I used like a super white middle class (laughs) word there. Um, So I was just like, wow. I feel like everything that we talked about five days ago just got flipped on its head. (laughs) (laughs) Parenting is hard, right? Just when you think you've got it figured out. Yeah. Well, we're hoping to circle back with Lauren for an update later in the spring because because it's tricky and and things are ever changing. So we'll keep you updated on her progress. But in the meantime, thank you all for sharing your voice memos with us. We've got a great one from Miriam in Inglewood. Hi, my name is Miriam and I'm the white mom of two sons ages eight and six and we're in an integrating school in Inglewood because I want them to have an experience that looks very different from the homogenous bubble that I experienced in the suburbs of New York City growing up. Thank you Miriam for sharing. So what did you think? Record us your own voice memo. Email it to us, hello at integratedschools.org. Find us on social media at Integrated Schools. If you're enjoying the podcast, consider going to integratedschools.org and making a donation. $10, $20, $200, whatever you've got uh, as an all-volunteer organization, every little bit helps. And thanks to everyone who's emailed, rated, reviewed. We um, we're grateful for your feedback. It means a lot. And we are happy to be in this with you all as we try to know better and do better. See you next time.